0: particularly splendid this morning, with his waistcoat and trousers matching. Have you got the three-piece suit, or is it... No? no? Okay. Ruth, can you bring my Swiss hat for me, please? <laughs> just, just a minute, you know. I, I wasn't sure about this. I, I, thought, I thought I sensed there was something happening, but I, I got this hat last year when I was in Switzerland about a year ago, but I, it's got a use today. So if Graham's got any weddings or... You know, no, I was... Con- you could use yours. If Graham's got any weddings coming up and he needs the jacket as well, yes. I'll just leave the hat lying there and we can have a, we can start a fund for Graham's jacket. And that would be, that would be really, really... I think that would be good, because the waistcoat and the trousers are absolutely van dabby Not quite tartan, but a hint of the same. Really, really good. So, by way of nothing... <laughs> Except I was impressed when I came in this morning. I I was really impressed. Oh, wow! Arlene chose it. it. She's got good taste. So it was back in the summer of 1998, there was a book caught my attention. I think it was August 1998, this book had just come out, and it was called The Purpose Driven Church, uh, and was written by Rick Warren, who's the pastor of Saddleback Church in uh, California. And I, I read this book and I devoured it. Anybody read the book, "The Purpose-driven Church?" A number of you have. And uh, it was just a month or two later, I was appointed to a role with an evangelical alliance in London, and I was going to be leaving the Glasgow church and traveling down to London. And it just seemed a good time to encourage my Glasgow church to consider the purpose driven church as they sought direction for the future. Whether they took any notice of that advice, whether they took any notice of that book, I'm not able to judge. But imagine my delight when I realized that in my first summer with Evangelical Alliance, I would be leading a select group of UK church leaders to Saddleback in California for the Purpose Driven Church Conference. I was so excited. And I still remember... One of the first pieces of advice that Rick Warren gave the thousands of pastors who were gathered together for the event, here is what he said, don't give up the leadership of your church to whiners, not winos, whiners. And then he said, some of you can go home now because that's all you needed to hear. And having been by that time a pastor for 15 years in two churches, I could identify with that advice. And today's topic in our look at the Acts Church is called Trouble Inside the Church, Bad Behavior. And I've experienced what Rick Warren warned people about, giving over leadership, giving over influence to people who whine, to people who moan within a congregation. For church leaders, there's a real temptation to not only listen to those who are dissatisfied with the way church is being run, but to take action as a result, to avoid conflict and to maintain peace within the church, possibly at the expense of the direction God may be leading. Now, I'd been pastor of a church in Glasgow for 13 years when I heard uh, Rick Warren say that. And I knew one couple in the church, let's call them Mr. and Mrs. H., before I'd even gone to be pastor of that church. And it didn't take long before I realized that they saw me coming as their pastor and my prior relationship with them as an opportunity to further enhance the power and influence they had within that congregation. However, they quickly found out I was not prepared to dance to their tune. I would neither be their puppet nor their special friend. But I discovered that other people, and particularly older people, were. They were not prepared to support certain ministries or initiatives in the church because Mr. and Mrs. H would not like it. And if Mr. and Mrs. H did not like it, they had ways and means of being unpleasant. They were the whiners who were used to getting their own way. They were exercising a reign of terror in the church over those they could bully. Our pastor colleague said to me one day, the time will come when you'll need to take their funeral services and say nice things about them. And I took the funeral services for each of them, and I managed to say nice things about them with a clear conscience. Rick Warren said, don't give up the leadership of your church to whiners. Do you know there were whiners in the Acts church? Well, Luke doesn't actually use the word whiner. He indicates that a group of people within the church complained that the way in which the food bank was being administered was unfair. Notice food banks are not simply products of the early 21st century. The Acts 2 church was diverse. The members came from one of two backgrounds. In the one group were those who came from a Hebrew background. In the other group were those who came from a Greek or a Hellenistic background. Both groups had a Jewish background, but their culture was different. And here was the complaint. The Grecian Jews complained that the Hebrew widows were getting a bigger share of the daily distribution of food than were the Grecian widows. In fact, the complaint was that the Grecian widows were being overlooked. And the complaint was, it's not fair. Now, the 12 apostles acted wisely. They took the complaint seriously, but they weren't prepared to be distracted from the specific ministry that God had called them to do to deal with the issue at hand. They didn't take sides. So here's what they did. They took the wind out of the sails of the whiners. And they said to the group of disciples, choose from among you seven men who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we'll hand this responsibility over to them. And everyone was happy. That's sometimes a good thing. Everyone was happy with this proposal, and seven men were duly identified and presented to the apostles who prayed and laid hands (coughs) on them. Incidentally, an after I prepared this, I listened to Graham's sermon from last Sunday. Incidentally, in God's economy, all seven had Greek names, presumably chosen from the Grecian section of the church. Now, my interpretation and understanding is slightly different from what Graham said last week, and that's, that's a difficulty when we, we overlap, because I think Graham hinted last week that the division in the church between the Greeks and the Jewish background believers continued. What I think's happening here, and Graham might be right, and I might be right, it just shows we've all got to go back to the Bible and sort it out for ourselves, be like the Bereans who checked out whether stuff was as it should be or not. What I think was happening is this, that under God's economy, all of the people who were chosen to administer the whole lot of the distribution, not just the Hellenistic part of the distribution were Hellenistic. They were Grecian. And, and I think under God's uh, guidance and direction, the wind really was taken out of the sails of the winers, the complainers, because now they had to make sure that the Hebrew widows weren't being neglected, as well as the Greek widows, and the, all the food in the food bank. The embryonic food bank in the early church was shared equally. That's an interpretation, that's an understanding. It works, so does Graham's from last week. You have a look, and you see. So the response to whiners in the Acts 6 church was to say, over to you, you sort it out. The result was, and the result is important, the word of God spread, there was rapid growth in the number of disciples in Jerusalem, and even a number of Jewish priests became believers. (laughs) I read on Facebook this morning And you can't believe everything you read on Facebook. (laughs) But this was a report from Premier Christian Radio, so it's, it's, it's got good provenance. It says, a prince of IS has been converted to Christianity. And they won't mention his name other than call him Mohammed because that's sort of common name amongst these guys. This guy had a vision. He had a vision of an envelope seeping blood and an evangelist was there to help him see that this was God showing his love through Jesus to him. And this guy who can't be mentioned, a terrorist, has come to know Jesus as Savior. Pray about that. Pray that it's true. Pray for that guy. When when I went to Israel uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, Benita... Maybe he's gone out with the kids. Benita would have met this guy when she went to Israel in the autumn. We met a guy who was Yasser Arafat's driver and hitman, who'd become a Christian in uh, America, come back to Jericho, and was leading the Christian ministry. God can do great things. God can do great things even from the most unlikely circumstances of a dispute about who gets most in the food bank. The scenario could have played out so differently, could have split the church in two along ethnic lines. One of the early observations on the Christian church was this. See these Christians, how they love one another. And this positive observation was an attractive selling point for Christian faith and led to church growth. But if the apostles hadn't handled this situation maturely, a church split would have created a negative effect. The Acts 2 church was not the utopia that some have led us to believe. As Graham was teaching last week, there's no perfect church now and there never has been. An appointed piece of advice, here attributed to Billy Graham, goes like this If you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'd only spoil it. And that's true. When Ruth and I moved to a new church in 2006, just six months after our marriage, we moved to a church which presented many attractive features, a modern building, fully paid off, a congregation approaching 400 people, an annual holiday club attracting over 150 children, the opportunity for me to build a staff team in which the gifts of the team members complemented one another, a widespread openness to the gifts and things of the Spirit and to biblical preaching, a commitment to contemporary worship, and most of all, a sense that God was calling us to that place. The illusion of well-being did not last long the thing that kept me together and there was the sense that God still was calling me to that place. We discovered that worship wars were raging. The sectional ministries of the church had become jealously guarded little empires. The church was hurting in the aftermath of the misdemeanors of a popular worship leader who'd gone to prison for his crimes. And some families were hurting because they knew the way in which this situation had impacted their families, while others, ignorant of the full picture, supported the worship leader and were outraged at the way the previous pastor and leaders had handled the situation. And just like Mr. and Mrs. H in the Glasgow church, there were those who sought to who, if not in fact, own the new pastor and his wife, in fact, there was another Mr. and Mrs. H, which led me to believe, is there a pattern here? And I, I was thinking, have we got anybody called Mr. and Mrs. H here? I'm sorry, Dave and Ave. I eventually realized it was you. So, so, so my pattern breaks down. So I, I can't write a book about it. I can't say if you've got a Mr. and Mrs. H in your church, then they're the troublemakers. Keep an eye on them. Ray Holse watching you, you know, you can't, do, you, you can't do that. But it was coincidence that our bete Noire, I think that's how you pronounce the plural as well as the singular, our bete Noire, my bete Noire, both in Glasgow and Western Supermer, were couples called Mr. and Mrs. H, different H's, but. There was some wacky stuff, totally wacky stuff going on in that church. One of the visions shared widely in the fellowship described me coming out of the pub followed by the angel of death. And I'd never even been in the pub. Others are not repeatable from a public platform. It was that crazy. However, one guy who'd been at New Wine had a most interesting picture which he shared with us. He saw a battlefield strewn with casualties, wounded, dead, and dying, and then he saw a caption across the picture, and this is what it said, friendly fire. And what he believed God was saying through this picture to our church was, you're beating one another up. There's trouble inside the church and it's not good. We weren't persecuted from without, we were tearing ourselves apart from within. And although we experienced an extreme example of friendly fire which was still smoldering when we moved on after nine years, friendly fire has dogged the church of Jesus Christ from the book of Acts onwards and still tears congregations apart. So we idealize the church of any era at our peril. And as we look back at the church in Acts, we discover some of the earliest examples we've already looked at. One of them in introduction, it's not fur, but there are others. At the end of Acts, we read that Barnabas sold a field which he'd owned, brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was a good guy. We talked about him somewhere way back in the autumn. This wasn't a common, this was not a common, but not a com- this was a common but not a compulsory practice. Barnabas owned the field. He was free to retain it or sell it. It was up to him what he did with the proceeds. But then enter another couple. I don't know what their surname was, perhaps it would be on with H. Ananias and Sapphira they also sold a piece of property, but they privately agreed to retain some of the proceeds for themselves before laying the rest at the apostles' feet. Now, Peter makes clear they were entitled to do this. What was wrong with their actions was this they made out that, like Barnabas and others, they'd handed over the whole proceeds of the sale. In other words, they were hypocrites attempting to appear to be more generous than they actually were. And Peter labels their action as lying to the Holy Spirit. And Ananias is so convicted he falls down dead on the spot. Friends, this is heavy, heavy stuff. Three hours later, Sophia shows up totally ignorant of her husband's death and Peter quizzes her. Not the best mode for bereavement counseling, I have to say. Is this the price you got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. So, says Peter, don't you know that your husband's been struck dead for his part in the deception? And you're next, whereupon she drops dead on the spot. It's not a pretty story. Now, I have to reassure you, this is not a common occurrence. In fact, it's the only such incident recorded in the accounts of the early church. So what's it all about? What does it teach us? It teaches us that in the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be honest with one another. We need to trust one another. There's no room for private agendas. Jesus prayed that his disciples and those who came to faith through their ministry, which eventually is us, should be one as he and his heavenly father are one. Often those outside the church denounce us as hypocrites, judging that our behavior does not live up to our profession or perhaps misunderstanding that we do not claim to have arrived but see ourselves as sinners saved by grace and on a journey to become more like Christ. But the Ananias and Sapphira incident is hypocrisy within the fellowship. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek stage and describes an actor wearing a mask, posing as someone else. And for the church of Jesus Christ to prosper, we need to tear off those masks. We need to be honest with one another, accountable to one another, supportive of one another. What was the aftermath of this horrific incident Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, as part of my job with Evangelical Alliance, I came across church leaders who were subsequently unmasked as deceivers, sexual predators, and bullies. Yet, bizarrely, some of their churches still appeared to thrive. Does this imply that anything goes? Not at all. For if indeed the church is the bride of Christ, he's looking for a pure bride, not one riddled with internal strife and squabbles, and not squabbles, petty and not so petty. I've already referred to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 when he prays for unity among the believers. What does he say is the reason for such unity? That the world may know that the Father has sent the Son to into the world. So a church in which members can complain about preferential treatment based on ethnic distinctions or a church in which members tell lies about their generosity to appear more worthy than they actually are is not a pure bride of Christ. The third example of trouble within the church described in the book of Acts refers to theological understanding and ritual practice. And the presenting issue is circumcision. And I am just so glad we don't have to do that today. Some of the church leaders were arguing that circumcision was necessary for salvation. If as was happening, Gentiles, non-Jews were becoming believers, then it was argued they should be circumcised according to the law of Moses. When Circumcision takes place in a Jewish background according to the law of Moses. Circumcision is conducted on a tiny baby. It brings tears to the eyes to think what it must be like to have circumcision on a grown adult. And yet that's what they were arguing. The grown adults who became believers in Jesus as Messiah should be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas vigorously oppose this understanding. Certainly, when a Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas the question, What must I do to be saved? Paul's answer is believe and be baptized. He doesn't say believe, be baptized, and I've got a knife in my bag, be circumcised. Circumcision is not part of the package. Peter argues that if Gentiles have been converted and have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, circumcision is an unnecessary burden. We believe, says Peter, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. In conclusion to this, however, James suggests it's not appropriate to make it difficult for those Gentiles turning to God by requiring circumcision. Why don't we just write them a letter? Tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And when a little posse, including Paul and Barnabas, is sent to Antioch with the good news that they don't need to be circumcised, however, you will do well to avoid meat sacrifice to idols, blood, the meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. I am not sure why they included sexual immorality in the category of you will do well to avoid this because sexual immorality is an absolute and an abiding no-no, but the adherence to the dietary laws would be culturally appropriate in avoiding unnecessary offence at that time and at that place, and I'm so glad they don't apply to me because I've got a penchant for black pudding with my fry up. (laughs) But back to my western supermer story. When I offered the solution of an extra service at nine o'clock for those who were uncomfortable with digital projectors, amplified worship bands, casual dress, omission mission of the Lord's Prayer, and I forget what all else I undertook to wear a jacket and a tie. I had the full gear, Graham, in those days. And one gentleman asked me in all seriousness, and will you tuck your shirt in? It's interesting to see what things are important amongst members of a church. That being said, the nine o'clock service continues and is thriving, and what started as a device to deal with whiners has become a valuable congregation in its own right. God is bigger than all the whining. God is bigger than all the moaning. God is bigger than all the disputes in a local congregation. So why are we looking at this subject today? Is it simply to emphasize the fact that we should not idealize the Acts church because they had their teething troubles which needed to be sorted out? I'd say no. Although if we were to extend our reading from Acts to the epistles, we would see plenty of strange and unhelpful practices operating in the New Testament churches. In point of fact, much of what Paul wrote was to correct improper practice. Just last month, When we were thinking about communion, we discovered that Paul had some harsh words to say about the unloving way some were acting at the love feasts at which communion was a central act. And elsewhere in his letters to Corinth, Paul hits out a tolerance of sexual immorality within the church, of believers taking one another to court, and so on. that's a great expression of church and mission available today, which is called Messy Church, and I love Messy Church. We had Messy Church uh, in Western Supermere eventually, and it continues, and it's great. It's messy because you use sticky stuff, and you use paint, and all of that kind of things, but actually, I would like to argue that the original messy church was the church in Corinth where so many things were going wrong. So we don't idealize the church in Acts. We certainly don't idealize the church in Corinth. But we learn from these churches on the basis of what they got wrong and we try to avoid their mistakes. And if we jump to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find the exalted Lord of the church finds various things to hold against them, including tolerance of heretical teaching and mediocrity in terms of devotion to himself. Friends, we're not here this morning to pick holes in the early church, but rather having recognized that they had their internal problems which threatened their mission, we're here to heed the warnings about how easy it is to be contentious, to be hypocritical, and to be legalistic. So what are we called to do? In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4 verse 3, we're called upon to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, we're called upon to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And as he writes to the Corinthians, Paul reminds them, not only are they individually temples of the Holy Spirit, but corporately together, they are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So as Graham was encouraging us earlier to open up the gates of our heart and let the Spirit in or let God in, as Kath was praying earlier along or prophesying earlier along similar lines, let's open the doors of our church and let the Holy Spirit have his rightful place because together we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So local churches are meant to be harmonious, mutually supportive mission agencies which model something attractive to a watching world. A man who influenced my life greatly by his writing in formative years was called Francis Schaeffer. He was an American theologian or philosopher who established a community in Switzerland called Labri back in the 60s. Uh, And in a seminal book, one which meant a lot to me as I was studying ecological science at Edinburgh University, it was called Pollution and the Death of Man, the Christian View of Ecology. My own subject, academic subject, was put into a spiritual context for me in that book. And Schaefer says, local churches should effectively be pilot plants demonstrating the potential of the kingdom of heaven. You know what a pilot plant is? Before somebody in big business invests a lot of money in building their whole operation, what they do is they do something on a smaller scale to demonstrate that it's possible to get the investment and the buy-in and all of that sort of thing. And Schaefer argued that a local congregation like this should be to a watching world, a pilot plant of the kingdom of heaven so that people can look at us and say, wow, that's good. That works, I'd like to be part of that. And the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, grows. When my kids were teenagers, we had the opportunity to visit Disney in Florida. And we milked those theme parks dry over three or four days. And our particular interest was Epcot. Do you know what Epcot stands for? Anybody been to Epcot in Florida? Just one or two. EPCOT, a wonderful place. It stands for the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Uh, And part, half of the uh, theme park called EPCOT shows you all sorts of innovations. What's possible? What's the new things that's coming? And uh, that was way back in the early 90s. They must have newer things that are coming now that are new as innovations, whereas the things I saw then have probably either come to pass or been discarded. Late at night, after the last firework had dissipated from the sky, and we boarded the Dotto train, you know, one of those little land trains. We boarded the Dotto train to the parking lot. The guy who was driving the train, the Disney cast member, said, you know what Epcot really stands for? He said, every person comes... Out Tired. <laughs> and we were knockers. We'd been there all day. We've milked the place dry. We'd had a great time. But for me that's a picture of the local church when we get it wrong. Every person comes out tired. Tired from overcommitment. Tired from unrealistic expectations placed upon us or self-inflicted. Tired from the petty quabbles of the whiners and power plays of those who would seek to control. Tired of the hypocr- hypocritical play-acting. Mary had a little lamb that would have been a sheep. But then it joined the local church and died through lack of sleep. <laughs> Although I have noticed some closed eyes. No names, no pack trail, while I've been speaking this morning. When we get it right, we become that experimental prototype community of tomorrow. We become something beautiful. We become something attractive. We become something that's really got value and shows value to our community. We become the kingdom of God in microcosm. Let me pray that we might become that kind of church. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that your word, the Bible, tells it warts and all. That you haven't uh, protected us or hidden us from the hard things like the story of the grim tale of Ananias and Sapphira. Thank you, Father, that you've shown what matters to you so that we know what should matter to us. Father, I just ask that you would... uh, Speak to each one of our hearts this morning and uh, reveal to us if we have a critical spirit in relation to the local church here, the body of Christ. A critical spirit which we need to lay on the altar before you. Help us, Father, to be those who would be wanting to be of the same mind one with the other, wanting to be united one with the other, wanting to be supportive one with the other, wanting to be accountable one to the other so that together we might be that beautiful picture of a microcosm of the kingdom of God. We might be that pilot plant. We might be that show house. The people would be able to come in and see, well, If that's what living in the kingdom of God's like, I want some of that. So Father, you know our church better than we do because it's your church. We give it over to you. And we ask, Father, that uh, you protect us from internal troubles. But when they come, as statistically they're likely to, when they come, we just pray, our Father, that you would grant leadership in this church, wisdom, to know how to respond like you gave wisdom to the 12 apostles in Acts chapter 6. And as a result of the exercise of that wisdom, may we see the church growing and developing and becoming stronger on a daily basis. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.